0: for that very generous introduction, and I should also um, thank everybody else who's um, been involved in uh, inviting me um, here this evening. Um, I agreed to talk about the role of preservation in building positive peace, uh, because uh, when I was um, asked to do this, I thought it would be um, quite an easy thing to do. Rupert, uh, Uh, who asked me, and uh, I I agreed to do it without much thought, thinking it would be a bit of a piece of cake. Um, (laughs) As everybody knows, the role of cultural preservation uh, has an obvious role in uh, building positive peace. But the more I started to think about it, the more I realised how difficult it would be to actually talk um, about this. Um, So, you'll excuse me, I hope, if my um, talk this evening is quite rambling. I'm going to throw out what uh, I think are uh, a number of points and uh, ideas, and it'll be very interesting um, at the end of the talk uh, to have your uh, reactions and responses um, to some of the things um, that I say. Well, to start with, um, I think the difference between um, positive peace and... Uh, negative peace um, is uh, is fairly obvious really, uh, positive peace of course is um, where you actually uh, have peace and uh, people feel um, uh, empowered and uh, privileged and there's justice and everybody's happy and so on negative peace is the opposite uh, to that uh, when there might ostensibly um, be peace but there are a number of um, Uh, underlying um, problems and uh, difficulties and people don't necessarily feel that they um, belong um, with communities and so on and so forth. And we might, I think, mischievously ask if um, positive peace has um, ever existed uh, anywhere uh, Mm -hmm. except possibly in uh, Thomas More's um, Utopia. Uh, It certainly didn't in, for example, the USA in the 1960s in the time of Martin Luther King, who said that peace is not only the absence of tension, but the presence of justice, which he didn't feel that there was at that time, obviously, um, in the US. But However um, that might be, obviously um, cultural heritage does have an important role to play Uh, in in any attempt um, to build um, positive peace. So what I'm going to do this evening um, is outline um, what I believe uh, to be some of the areas um, where cultural heritage uh, is important and can make a difference. Of course, you know, there are different ways of um, uh, dealing with this. Uh, What I've actually done is, uh, what I want to do is to discuss it Um, under six different heads. Uh, And then to look at um, whether in the Middle East, because that's my main um, area of interest, uh, whether it is actually possible um, to talk about uh, restoring, repairing, uh, building, introducing um, cultural (laughs) heritage, cultural preservation, in an attempt to build positive peace. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I want to make a few um, general um, remarks. Um, what I'm showing you here um, at the top left uh, is one of the great cultural icons of uh, Iran. Um, this is the, um, this is the, the site, ancient site of Persepolis. It's one of the jewels, I think, um, of the ancient world. It's an, uh, an icon, cultural icon, uh, which is very much respected Um, by Iranians and my point of showing you this image um, is to tell you that uh, in 1979 uh, one of the uh, Ayatollahs, Ayatollah Khalkhadi uh, urged that the uh, site of Persepolis um, should uh, be destroyed on the grounds that it was um, un-Islamic. And actually what happened was that thousands and thousands of uh, ordinary Iranian citizens and villages villagers uh, converged on Persepolis. Uh, They surrounded the site, blocked all the roads going to Persepolis, uh, and prevented the bulldozers um, from reaching the site. So this is an example um, of a national icon, um, or one even might call it a symbol of um, nation building, which is very much respected Uh, by the local population. This is not always the case uh, in the Middle East. And I should perhaps have said, sorry, when I said I was going to discuss cultural heritage in six categories, my first category uh, is what I'm calling national icons or symbols of nation um, building. Um, Now, another uh, Iranian national icon is the thing that you see at the bottom left there, It's something called the Cyrus uh, Cylinder. It's a cylinder which was uh, inscribed on the orders of King Cyrus after he captured Babylon uh, in 539 BC. And it's often called the First Declaration of Human Rights. Mm -hmm. Now, in fact, it isn't that at all. Um, There's a lot of misrepresentation uh, about what's actually written uh, on on this cylinder. And it's certainly not any kind of um, guarantee um, of human rights. But uh, from my point of view, I don't think that really matters. What's important is what people actually think that it says. And for all Iranians, it is very much regarded uh, as, as I said, as a, as a kind of um, statement about um, human rights. Well, I want now to talk about other. Um, national icons. Uh, most of the ones that I'm going to um, show you now, uh, from elsewhere in the Middle East, have been uh, the target of uh, terrorists, and a lot of them have been uh, destroyed. And uh, We start, of course, with the Buddhas of um, Bamiyan, um, on, the, on the right there. They were very well known uh, in Afghanistan and outside Afghanistan, widely regarded around around the world um, as uh, symbols of Afghanistan, if you like, and that's presumably why um, they were targeted at the time um, by the Taliban, with a great deal of attendant um, publicity, um, you'll remember. Now I want to come on now to Iraq, which is um, a very good... uh, Uh, case study I think Um, Iraq is in many ways an artificially created country uh, created after the uh, First World War and it was necessary to choose a number of icons uh, which hopefully the population of Iraq would be able to identify um, with and associate themselves with and those icons include um, wind bulls and reliefs from Assyrian policies. So they appear, for example, on Iraqi banknotes, coins, medals, stamps, uh, and so on. And what you see over on the right is a drawing by um, a a schoolgirl, a refugee, uh, who ended up, an an Iraqi girl, who ended up in Lebanon. And um, she was asked to um, produce something um, which, for her, represented the symbols of her homeland. And this is what she came up with. And you'll see that there's a wind bull um, over on the left. And down below that, there's the Ishtar Gate at um, Babylon. So not surprisingly, um, perhaps, uh, Assyrian sculptures and wind bulls um, inevitably became one of the uh, main targets of ISIS after they captured the sites of um, Nimrud and um, Nineveh. Now many of you have seen these horrific um, videos. What you see on the top left is uh, uh, people destroying one of the winged bulls um, at um, Nineveh. Uh, and this is the site the wonderful ancient site of um, Nimrud being blown up uh, in a massive um, explosion. Now Part and parcel of, of the part of the reason um, for this, uh, obviously, is to destroy um, these uh, anti-Islamic um, icons. But there's much more to it um, than that. You can do that without creating a massive explosion and destroying um, the whole site. So it's obvious that the uh, intention was to destroy this place, which has become an important symbol of Iraqi um, nationhood. And we see the same sort of thing with uh, Hatra. There's a very wonderful site dating from the first, second century AD in the northwest part of Iraq, and there's a whole series of um, wonderful temples. You can see one up there uh, on that banknote, and again. Um, It was the target of uh, destruction um, by uh, ISIS and uh, uh, they've done a huge amount of damage uh, in the ancient site. Um, You see exactly the same sort of thing in Syria. Syria, there are uh, icons just as there were in Iraq. Palmyra was such an icon, appears on a lot of... um, um, Syrian uh, banknotes, um, stamps uh, and so on uh, and I think that was the main reason why um, it was targeted by ISIS because they knew that, uh, uh, that it would attract a huge amount of attention around the world which it did um, if they um, uh, destroyed the site and uh, as a result I'm afraid uh, they've inflicted um, enormous damage uh, there. So that really was my first category, national icons, or symbols of um, nation building. My second category is um, uh, museums. Museums, of course, are uh, repositories of um, memory. And uh, the destruction of them um, is Mm. invariably um, a huge blow to um, local communities whose traditions are recorded uh, in those museums. Um, the top left is the museum in Kabul, after it was been uh, extensively destroyed by the Taliban, and most of the, um, most of the objects in the museum um, stolen, destroyed removed. Um, but I have to say this is a recurrent theme here that um, Uh, many of the objects uh, in the Kabul Museum were rescued by the local population who took them off into (coughs) safe storage. And there's a clear indication of the importance which these buildings have um, for the local population. Um, That's less the case, I think, in Iraq, uh, in Baghdad, where uh, not many people did make, not many local people did make much of an effort to uh, save or retrieve objects from the National Museum. This is the museum uh, in Baghdad after, uh, I'll call them vandals for want of a better word, a rampage through the building, um, destroying everything that was left behind um, inside it. And this is another museum, the one in Mosul, which at that time attracted little uh, attention. This is in um, 2003, but Mm -hmm. exactly the same happened in Mosul, as happened in Baghdad, on exactly the same day, uh, in fact. So obviously, the whole thing had, to some extent, been orchestrated. Um, Now, we're going on now to Mosul Museum uh, two years ago. This was uh, after ISIS had captured um, Mosul. Um, They completely destroyed uh, everything that was um, left behind um, in the museum, um, and they released this um, horrific um, video demonstrating um, what they had done. At the time, unfortunately, um, it was recorded that most of the material left behind in the museum were actually casts. In fact, they weren't. They were all pretty much um, original objects. So uh, a great deal of damage uh, done um, at um, that time. So that um, museums. Um, other repositories of memory um, are, of course, uh, libraries. Um, a couple of examples here. One is the, um, the National Library of Bosnia-Herzegovina, which was um, badly destroyed by, um, uh, deliberately, apparently, by Serbian shelling in August um, 1992. Uh, many valuable books and manuscripts were destroyed. And more recently, there's the case of the libraries in Timbuktu in uh, Mali, um, where thousands of unique and priceless um, manuscripts again uh, were wantonly uh, destroyed. But um, the great thing about that is that about 90% of the manuscripts that were in the libraries in Timbuktu um, were heroically uh, removed by. Um, the local population, under the very noses of the people who wanted um, to, to destroy them. So, and, and they were taken into um, safe hiding places. So fortunately, um, a good deal of the material that were, was in the libraries um, has now been saved um, by local citizens. But the fact that they acted so courageously is a clear indication of just how valuable the local community felt that the manuscripts were for them. They are, as I said, repositories of memory. In museums, it's repositories of visual memory. In libraries, it's repositories of um, written um, memory. Then my fourth um, category um, is places of um, worship. It hardly needs to be said um, how important um, mosque, churches, and um, synagogues are to local populations um, in different parts um, of the Middle East. And uh, they've all, uh, in one way or another, um, been targeted. At the top, you can see the uh, Askari Shrine in Samara, uh, which was a Shia sanctuary. It was the burial place of the 10th and the 11th um, Imams. Uh, And uh, it was bombed um, by um, Sunni insurgents in 2006. It's now actually been restored, one of the very few places um, that has been um, restored. Then below, uh, this mosque here in Tikrit was actually uh, the earliest mosque uh, in Iraq. It's called the Arba'in Mosque. And it had a very early seventh-century church next to the mosque, uh, and they've both been um, completely um, destroyed. Um, this is uh, well. This is Mosul. Um, in two years ago, the, this um, minaret here belongs to the uh, shrine. Uh, shrine. Uh, dedicated to Jonah. It's called the the Mosque of um, Nebi Nebi Yunus. Um, It was actually a Sunni mosque, but of course for Wahhabis, uh, any mosque or religious building which is identified um, with a particular person or a saint or whatever uh, is uh, anathema. Uh, And it's that reason, of course, why, um, for example, uh, Wahhabis um, or even Saudi Arabian kings get taken into the desert and buried in uh, unmarked graves. So this tomb of Jonah um, was, uh, was blown up and I have to tell you that uh, this is only the tip of the iceberg as far as um, damage in Iraq is concerned. Just in Mosul, more than 100 um, churches, um, mosques, um, sanctuaries, shrines have been destroyed. Nearly every single one, actually. More than 100. It, it's uh, a shocking devastation on an absolutely um, shocking um, scope. Well, after places of workshop, I just want very briefly to talk um, about landscapes as we're uh, in, on the subject of cultural um, destruction. Uh, Landscapes, also, are hugely important, um, culturally. This is not an example of a cultural landscape. Um, But the example that I want to mention here is uh, some of the Central Asian states in the Soviet Union. Anybody that's been to Tajikistan or Turkmenistan or Uzbekistan will know that um, the landscape there has been completely transformed. If you go, for example, into Turkmenistan, you'll see wide expanses of uh, land which have just been bulldozed flat. No villages, no ancient sites, no mounds, nothing like that. If you go across the border into Iran or Afghanistan, you'll find something totally different. So those are examples of cultural landscapes which have been uh, transformed, and obviously to the detriment of the local people whose uh, memories and uh, identity, to some extent, have been eroded, and they can, of course, never be um, restored. Um, There's also intangible heritage, which has been under threat uh, for a very long time, obviously, and I'm thinking here particularly of um, languages and um, dialects. Before we start to get too sanctimonious in this respect, we should remember that even here, um, in the UK, uh, in the 19th century, it was, for example, forbidden to speak Welsh in uh, schools in Wales. Um, Yeah, now I put this uh, image on because um, I just wanted um, to make the point um, that uh, Um, much of the destruction that we've seen has come about um, for ideological uh, reasons I'm coming on to that uh, in a moment but not necessarily um, all of it there's been a great deal of publicity about um, looting and about trafficking um, of antiquities and there's absolutely no doubt that uh, in some places this is during Rokos in Syria there's very extensive evidence of um, illegal uh, excavation but I have to say and and indeed it would be very very surprising if in the middle of all this there weren't some people who wanted to take opportunity take advantage um, of what was happening uh, in order to earn money by selling antiquities. I'm sure it does happen, but certainly not um, on the scale which has been, um, which has been claimed um, uh, uh, in the press. Um, I don't think there's any examples at all of sculptures from Nimrud and Nineveh, for example, uh, being trafficked. Or If they have been, they certainly haven't been appearing on the market uh, in the West. And it has to be said that it's very convenient indeed to be able to say that all the chaos is being caused by the uh, illicit traffic in antiquities, uh, instead of, for example, in the case of Iraq, ensuring that there's proper law and order uh, in, in the country. So I'm afraid the point I'm making here is that it's often cited as an excuse. Some of you might have different um, opinions about that. Well, why is ISIS doing um, all this? Um, They're doing it partly, I think, for ideological reasons, um, to um, remove uh, uh, icons which are offensive to their religion and so on, but at the same time, there's absolutely no doubt that they're trying to erase memory in the places which they're taking taking over, in order to be able to impose their own brand of authority and religion um, on those areas. I'm sure that's uh, really the main motivation um, behind it. Now, um, this is incidentally uh, a picture of somebody breaking up um, statues um, in in Palmyra. Mm -hmm. and People often uh, comment, well, often I'm I often asked whether this is worse than what happened at the time of the Reformation. And um, I w- one time I was uh, being interviewed on the Today programme by John Humphreys, and I said that I thought it was much worse than what had happened in the time of the Reformation. Uh, and I was taken to task by no less a person than Simon Sharma, who <laughs> was on the front page of the Financial Times, proclaimed me as a blinkered academic who didn't know what he was talking about. (laughs) Um, Now, the fact of the matter is, I think, actually, it is much worse. As I've told you, in Mosul, more than a hundred churches, shrines, mosques, and so on, have been completely... Well, they've not just been destroyed, they've been leveled to the ground. Many of these sites are now car parks. This is much worse, I think, um, what happened in the Reformation at least complete buildings didn't get destroyed and very often you know the wall paintings and that sort of thing of medieval churches will wipe off sugar, uh, and, and and so on but I don't think it was really uh, on the same scale but this is a matter of opinion and some of you might have um, different views um, about that well um, I just want to make the point now um, that the preservation of uh, cultural heritage has not always um, been seen to be necessary uh, or desirable and uh, there are many instances um, where it hasn't even been thought to be very important. Um, One of them is in 2003 um, when the American army, followed by the Poles, uh, decided to establish a military camp on the top of uh, ancient Babylon completely unnecessary, not even needed for strategic reasons and it caused um, a lot of damage. Uh, One might uh, also even refer to other outrages for example like the bombing of Dresden or the destruction of the Abbey of Monte Cassino neither of which was um, really necessary and at the time Uh, weren't thought to be um, very serious uh, or significant. And even in peacetime, there are some quite shocking examples of the destruction of cultural heritage. This, for example, is uh, Shakespeare's house. Um, And um, it was destroyed by the owner, demolished by the owner in 1759. Because he got fed up with people coming to Stratford on Avon and wanting to look at Shakespeare's house. So he simply knocked it out. Obviously at the time, um, nobody objected to that. Um, this is an example. example. This is a medieval church, a 12th century church, uh, in West Wales, uh, which is in the Slevech estate, very close to the, um, the ground house of the uh, estate and the owner in the middle of the 19th century, somebody called Garander de didn't like the idea of the local villagers coming so close to his house, so he de-roofed the church, lost two others of the same date um, at the same time. And he was hauled up the, court, the Ecclesiastical court, but of course nothing happened to him at all. So the point I'm making here is that uh, really... Uh, you know, the preservation of um, cultural heritage and, and the uh, urge to re- restore it, reconstruct it and so on is a relatively new um, phenomenon. And I, I say this before we start getting too sanctimonious and, uh, and patronising about um, our views um, on, the, uh, on the subject. And of course, uh, it was easy for people to get away with this sort of thing um, in the 19th century and earlier, because there were no mobile phones, no internet, no media, no um, daily papers to take up the cause. So, um, generally speaking, um, populations were more or less pretty, um, pretty suppressed. So um, these uh, people who wanted to do this sort of thing simply could um, could easily um, get away with it. But to get back to my main point, coming back again um, to uh, the Middle East, or the Middle East via Bosnia in this case, um, I think if we accept that the preservation Mm -hmm. of cultural heritage is important to people and communities, uh, and it plays an important role in building a positive peace, I think we should accept that. It obviously uh, is so. Um, If the heritage has been damaged or destroyed, it ought to be restored. Um, But there are, of course, many difficulties uh, in in doing this, and I just want to highlight some of those. Um, Well, first of all, it takes a very long time. Um, I was talking just before uh, dinner um, with Charmaine, I think, about the Bosnian War. And uh, uh, although that's been over for more than 20 years, um, as far as I know, the only, practically the only monument which has been rebuilt uh, in Bosnia uh, during that time um, is this famous bridge uh, in Mostar. Um, And then let's think about uh, Berlin. Very, very badly damaged of course uh, in, in the Second World War. But even with all the huge resources that uh, Germany has, and all the capacity um, that there is there, the Neues Museum on the Museum Island actually was only um, reopened in 2009. It's about 60 years after the Second World War. So if it takes that long to do things um, in Germany, what hope is there for doing things um, in uh, in, uh, in Iraq, um, I just want to make the point now that um, much can be achieved um, through um, digital um, reconstruction. Um, this of course is a half size model um, of the arch uh, in Palmyra um, which was um, Actually, it was reconstru- digital reconstruction was done on the basis of the work undertaken uh, here in Oxford by uh, this group um, led by um, Robert Bewley. I think they're doing very, very valuable work, and I hope that they will be able to um, do the same thing with other monuments um, in the uh, Middle East. But one thing um, that you have to be aware of is that not everybody believes that... Um, Places which have been destroyed should be reconstructed. There's quite a fierce debate um, on the subject. Um, I was at a UNESCO conference in Paris um, three weeks ago. It was the first meeting of the uh, so-called UNESCO-Iraq group. Um, The first meeting in three years, actually, after the uh, ISIS intervention. And uh, we hardly sat down before a fierce argument broke out about what should be restored and what shouldn't be restored. There's a number of people uh, who believed that you shouldn't start um, restoring uh, things which, in the first place, to some extent, had been restored. You see, this art here in Palmyra is as it was restored uh, in the time of the French mandate in the 1920s or 30s. So the question is, what do you do? Uh, Should you try and put it back to how it looked at the end of the Roman period? Should you put it back to how it looked uh, before the French reconstruction started? Or, and this is what I believe, you should actually reconstruct things to the state um, that they were in before they were most recently destroyed. I think that's the only reasonable thing that, uh, that you can do. And some of you might know that uh, a great advocate for doing that is Simon Jenkins, who's written, um, advocate, uh, who's written um, promoting that in, in a number um, of different places. And certainly, I think that that's what ought to happen um, in, uh, in Iraq and Syria, but that's my personal view. But I'd like to end on a positive um, note. And uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, I was originally asked to uh, come and uh, talk this evening by Rupert Burridge, who I met was privileged to meet in 2008, uh, when I went out uh, to Iraq, the uh, suggestion of um, Major General Barney White-Spanner um, to see what could be done about um, uh, helping uh, the Iraqis salvage something from their cultural heritage Uh, One of the things that was organised at that time was a survey um, of sites in southern Iraq to see which ones uh, had been looted and whether the uh, looting was ongoing. And the second thing was um, to see whether it would be possible to restore some of the museums um, in southern Iraq. And this is where Rupert uh, comes into it. He was in charge of a team of royal engineers... Uh, which examined a number of buildings um, in Iraq as well as um, uh, Basra, I think in Wasit and um, Nasiriya, perhaps. And the conclusion was that they should focus their efforts um, on Basra. This what I'm showing you here is the old museum um, in Basra. It's an old Turkish courtyard house, really unsuitable to be um, a museum. It had been badly looted in the time of the first Gulf War Nobody felt that it could be um, a a modern museum um, for uh, Basra. So Rupert and his team, um, after surveying a number of buildings, um, decided this was in conjunction and in consultation with the Iraqi authorities, I should stress, that this former palace of Saddam Hussein would make an excellent museum. A palace is a bit of a misnomer because there's about 50 buildings of this kind of size throughout Iraq. They're much better described as pavilions, um, I think. Anyway, so they uh, decided that this would be a very good uh, building for a museum for Basra, contacted um, the uh, Iraqi antiquities authorities and the director of Basra Museum, a young man called Qatan al Uh, uh, surveyed um, the building and soon after that we were able to get uh, money from um, BP to uh, do the the first uh, stage of the um, repair of the building and I'm pleased to say that um, part of the building, one third of it, opened in um, September um, of last year. A large gallery dedicated to the heritage Um, of Basra. Uh, This is the opening ceremony, of course, and already it's being visited by very large numbers um, of of, uh, school groups. And uh, still continuing on this positive note, uh, we recently got uh, a major grant from the Cultural Protection Fund, which will enable us to give money to the Iraqis to pay for the cases for the rest of the building, so the whole museum will be open. Um, in two years' time, in April um, 2019. So just to conclude, um, I'd like to think that, uh, at least in southern Iraq, um, there can be um, positive peace uh, based uh, partly on cultural preservation and uh, reconstruction, but also Um, on a better understanding of the situation on the ground, both by um, local people and by um, foreign powers with vested interests um, in uh, the area. And uh, I think what we need to do more and more is empower local people uh, to um, promote and look after their own cultural heritage. Thank you very much.